2: And a special welcome to my guest host, J. Kelly Hoey. Along with Kelly and our executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guys on this learning journey. J. Kelly Hoey and I want to enthusiastically share stories and information to inspire leaders. And we are all leaders at some point, so you can then inspire others. You can find out more about J. Kelly Hoey at jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey.co. And you can find Kelly on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. The Business Builder Show is distributed by C-Suite Radio. You can find the Business Builder Show and many other fine shows on C-Suite Radio. That's at www.c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Okay, Kelly, let's get going.
0: Thanks, Marty, and welcome to the Business Builder Show. I am so thrilled today to have as our guest my friend Jill Schlesinger. Jill, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting to be on, like, sort of role reversal here.
0: Well, I know, you know, I, this is big time for you now. You might be on CBS, but now you're on the Business Builders show. <laughs> oh,
1: no, but like you're interviewing me, whereas I interviewed you a couple of times, you know, <laughs> so I, that's, that's the whole role reversal that is is going on for us, you and me, baby.
0: Uh, well, I know that too. And, and you were the first podcast I was on when my book came out. So, you know, I'm indebted. Um, so I'm glad we're got you here today um, and you've made time in a busy schedule and that we get to talk about your book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrongs. But before we get to that, you've got a pretty interesting career path uh, to media. Um, How did you go from a gold copper commodities trader to media?
1: Uh, well, it is. Let me just be clear. There was no path. This was not well thought out. This was, you know, where you go next and saying yes to crazy ideas that seemed like you probably, in retrospect, like, of course you'd say yes to that. But in the moment, you would never say yes. So uh, my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. My godfather was a trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. So those were my summer jobs. So when I came out of college, there. There was no fancy trading desk job. I wanted to be on a physical floor, so I was on the Commodities Exchange of New York. Uh, for you old farts out there, uh, remember where trading places took place? That was the Commodities Exchange in New York. That's actually where I worked. Um, eight women, 800 men. Um, soon after, two men head-butted with one another and blood <laughs> spurted all over the place. I said, well, maybe this is not the right place for me, actually. Uh, <laughs> which did happen uh and and also by the way in a self-disclosing moment i will tell you i turned around for one second and said oh my god are you okay and then someone across the ring said a half bid for a hundred i turned around and i said sold and i never knew what happened to those two guys so uh i, I was not a great trader and i wanted to do something else and uh, i left the trading floor and uh could not figure out how to, you know, really how does that skill translate to another business? Like I know how to muscle my way in a scrum, so if, the, without being a rugby player, there are not many other careers. I stumbled into financial planning and wealth management because I knew someone who knew somebody who said, um, right, "Maybe you be, maybe you could do this." I said, "Well, I, all right, I, I guess I'll try," and. That turned into a 14-year adventure of doing financial planning and managing money for folks. And uh, early in the the process of managing money, uh, I was partnered up with one one guy. One of my partners was like an old insurance salesman. So, you know, how did he get business? He would just like call, you know, like literally cold call people. And I said, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. So he said, well, you better figure out a way to get people in the door because this is the only way I know how to do it. And uh, I knew somebody who worked at a radio station, and one thing led to another, and we started doing a call-in radio show, and that's how we grew our business. And radio led to TV and really kept doing that. I'm from New York originally. I was living in New England. Somebody knew somebody in cable news. I started doing some cable news hits, and during the financial crisis, someone from CBS had called me and said, uh, you know, oh, you're very good at talking about these complicated things in a way that regular people can understand. And I started appearing on CBS during 2008, 2009. I had sold my company back in, I think, 2006-ish, but I was in a earning out part of my contract. And then in the beginning of 2009, someone from CBS called me up and said, uh, We'd love to have you come in and talk to us. And I said, I don't know about what, but okay. And I went in. And, maybe, they, uh, maybe they needed a financial plan. You I knew. Seriously, I had no idea what I was doing. And they're, well, we're launching a new website, and we think you'd be a great person. I said, how many other people have you tried to hire for this job? And they're like, well, pretty much every financial journalist. But it was literally, it was 2009. Nobody wanted to jump ship to something new. So I said, uh, I'm not interested. I'm tired. And then three weeks later, I signed a contract. That was 10 years ago um in just a couple of weeks i'll have my 10 year anniversary wow. and so that's how i morphed into media queen that, like uh, unbelievable i love
0: i love that i wanna i wanna go back to new hampshire for a second the the call-in radio show like how like seriously the idea of using media to grow an investment you know advisory firm to grow a business i mean not i mean necessarily intuitive but was it like oh my god i got to try anything other than cold calling
1: Um, Well, there are two things. It was being done. There there was a guy who was on a a local New England radio station who I knew, and I knew the guy was a goddamn buffoon and didn't know Jack. (laughs) And so I said to the guy who runs the general manager, I literally said, you know that fat bastard you have on the air? He's giving terrible advice, and I cannot believe you have him on the air. He goes, well, you know, he has a contract. Then maybe three weeks later – the general manager calls me because oh my god i just got into a fight with this dingbat do you want to come in and try to do this so that's literally what i thought was that was how it sort of opened up and i knew that that fat bastard had grown his business tremendously on the back of media and so i i had i had like dabbled in media when i was in college you know i worked for the local nbc affiliate i had you know hosted a radio show an overnight jazz after hours radio show um and and so I knew enough about it that just to be dangerous. And so when what happened was, just in terms of the salesmanship, you have to remember this is the '90s. People are still totally listening to radio. And what we learned very quickly was that people who came in as a result of the radio show, we closed them at much higher percentages than the just the run of the mill person who came in off the street. So like obviously highest closing rate a referral. But people came in from the radio show. When you started like general sales model, you know, book 10 appointments, three show up, you close one of them. We were closing 50 to 60% of every person who booked an appointment with us from the radio show. Mm. So then we, we were like, whoa. Now we are focusing. This is it. And we literally leveraged that. We started doing radio. We we advertised on FM stations. No financial people were doing that. We just said, oh, let's go where their people are listening. And we started doing that, and it just grew and grew. And so we became a pretty big regional powerhouse, and that's how we did it. We did it with media.
0: Wow. Well, we still have radio. We just call it podcast now. Mm.
1: <laughs> right and and and, and it's and, and it's like a fraction of the business that it was back then but okay yeah. take yeah
0: it. yeah 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 but it, it, this whole idea like there's still the the power of traditional media um or the, you know those those kind of formats all right we're gonna jump into the book but i know marty wants to tell you something what he thought when he read it
2: oh no see oh. You, you teed me up for this but I'm, I think, but
0: I'm but i'm still putting you on you the know spot, you're Martin.
2: putting me on the spot so i did read the book joe and I just want to tell you, it really pissed me off. Why um, You know, I mean, I closed it three or four times. Like, I made that mistake. Oh, damn. I, I, I did that, too. I, yeah. I, and I'm in the middle of doing this. Like, why am I reading this book? It's depressing me. But thank you for for writing a good book. I loved it.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for reading it. Listen, um, you know, one of the guys who blurbed my book, his name is Mohammed El-Aryan. He's incredibly successful, interesting guy. Big economist, you know, worked at the World Bank, ran the Pimco bond fund. He literally called me up. He's like, Well, I only did two of the dumb things, so I feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So you're in good, so, you've got good company. Yeah.
0: You got really <laughs> smart people. But um, I know I had Joe when we were talking before jumping in and starting the, the show today. Marty's like, God, her book pissed me off. And I'm like, Why? Why? Why did it piss you off? It's a great book. And he's like, No, no, no. I made those mistakes. Yeah. Um, so, so. Obviously, to that was the reason you wrote this book. Uh, I wanted to ask you, why on earth, having been through the writing process myself, why on earth did you want to write a book or why did you fi- feel the need to write a book?
1: Um, well, I, I had sort of put it out there as like, oh, I really should write a book. I mean, literally a dozen years ago when I was still in the investment advisory business, I thought, oh, that would be a good way to kind of kind of get more clients, get a calling card. I was always about getting clients, right? That was my whole focus. And then I couldn't come up with a good concept. So I had three or four different proposals that my book agent was like, oh, these are so boring. Forget it. And uh, so I'm talking to him one day a couple of years ago and I said, you know, just like the the financial advice business is very weird, right? On one end, you've got a bunch of books that basically says, you know, uh, don't spend more than you make. And uh, don't go into credit card debt. These are not the people that I talk to. You know, generally speaking, those were not my clients and those are not my friends at work or my colleagues or my friends out of work. And then there are the other kinds of financial books that are silly, get rich quick books. Um, You know, oh, Bitcoin, Dow 36,000, my trading system, nobody I know who buys those books. So I said, what is a book? Where's the book for like the normal person with a good career, good head on his or her shoulders, who's just continually doing dopey things. And I said, well, there, there it is. That's it. Um, and so I had come up with a concept of the dumb things, uh, uh, probably a few years ago, maybe four years ago. And, uh, Maybe it was five years ago, because right before my father died, and he says, when are you going to write that goddamn book right before he died? So (laughs) there you go. So it wasn't a dying wish, wish, but uh, when you guys read the book, my father's a very larger than life personality. So he's literally in the hospital. He says, when are you going to write that goddamn book? So it took me a few years. I got my act together, and then I decided that I was going to get serious. And so honestly, what I did was I took every email that I had received from my radio show, which I've been doing for eight years, from my podcast, from... Um, I called up the guys who used to work for me, like the service people. I'm like, what are like the dumbest things that we saw? And we like started creating categories. And then I could populate those categories with stories. And that's how the book came to pass. It was just sort of like started. It was it wasn't like it wrote itself. But once I had the structure, it was a lot easier.
0: Yeah, I would say those those damn outlines they told you to do back in, you know, writing essays and papers back in college. You know, the thing you actually did need to write a book. Um, all right. The source of dumb financial decision-making, what is it?
1: it? It's a very sad, sad truth, and it is because you are a human being. That is why you're making bad financial decisions. And it's, uh, there's actually no cure to that, sadly. Uh, <laughs> we are all emotional, and we're not rational. Somehow or other people think like, well, if you just give me the equation, then the person is not going to screw up like, oh, OK, well, why don't I just tell you to eat less and exercise more? And then I figure that's the way to actually cure obesity. Not really. So we are trying to understand why we're screwing up. And it's simply that we are emotional. We tend to be guided by fear and greed specifically and also pretty interesting and entrenched Um biases that are really been they've been developed over years and years and years and those biases are are kind of tough to crack open but essentially as a human being you know what you're you're the way that you react is very good to something in the short term but the the long term part then those cognitive biases come creeping in and can really screw with you and so i think that if you're especially in intelligent. Sometimes you fall prey to these things. Um, Part of that has to do with the fact that if you are a smart professional, you tend to think anyone in front of you who's selling you something or been referred to is also a smart professional. And you don't want to do things like ask a question or seem dumb. Mm -hmm. So I think that all that plays into um, our decision making and can really lead us astray. So I'm hopeful that, uh, Marty, you will stop doing these dumb things.
2: I'm I'm working on them.
1: But more importantly, that you just kind of cut yourself some slack also, that you don't – you know, you don't have to – I have a real hard time with a, a scolding approach. You know, I use humor. I know. We all screw up. Listen, I got two failed marriages under my belt and very expensive, <laughs> by the way. Talk about a dumb mistake and one that was costly. Um, but it, it, it's, it's like you want to realize the mistake. You want to correct it. You want to move on. You don't have to live in that mistake forever.
0: That's like awesome. So I'm going to jump ahead on a question because you said you have, you know, there you are a smart person and you assume you've got a smart person in front of you selling you something, which
1: is really
0: perfect time to talk about the F word.
1: Mm, Yeah, I'm going to drop an F bomb, Marty. Okay. All right, go for it. Fiduciary. It wasn't so bad. No. I was expecting, on I sentence, was expecting that
2: more. I was expecting FY, more.
1: <laughs> FYI, I said, the first time I said that on network news, somebody was like, ugh, I don't ever want you to use that word. I hate that word. This is a terrible <laughs> word. Don't say it on the air. I said, well, you know, I'm going to put the douche in douche fiduciary. Um, so, all right, here's the problem. In financial services, unlike – let's say, a CPA or an attorney or a doctor, uh, there are ways that you are licensed to sell stuff. But the core issue in financial services is that there are are about half, maybe 60% of anyone out there who touches an investment product or an insurance product, that that person does not have to put you, the consumer, first. So if I am a financial professional, I'm held to something called suitability. I have to tell you something that's suitable for you, but I don't necessarily have to tell you if there's something more suitable for you, better for you in your best interest. And that is a really big problem because that means that many people are confusing the sales relationship with an advice relationship. Um, I actually conducted a, uh, a crazy Roundtable on behalf of the Consumer Federation of America, as well as the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards and AARP. We wanted to get a bunch of people around a table and do a focus group. We wanted to figure out: here's let's get a bunch of people who have a half a million to two million dollars invested with some financial professional. And we went around to try to figure out if they understood the difference between fiduciary and and the suitability standard. And three quarters of them. Did not know that their advisor, and I'm putting that in air quotes, didn't have to put them their interests first. Mm. Well, that's kind of interesting. Wouldn't you want to know that? I sure would. So number one, in like the the general hierarchy of things that you really need to be careful about is that you can't buy a financial product that you don't understand. But number two, don't take financial advice from the wrong person. You can buy something from that person, but you know, it's almost like the difference of saying i'm going to walk into a toyota dealership and when i walk into a toyota dealership they're going to sell me a toyota however if i go to someone who says i am a car consultant you would hope that when you walk into that person's office and they tell you to buy a car, that that car is actually in your best interest, not selling you that car because that's the only car they can sell you or they get a kickback from the car company, but it is truly in your best interest. That's what you want to know when you're dealing with any financial professional. All you have to do is ask, hey, are you held to the fiduciary standard at all time? Do, must you put my best interest first? And if not, then you're talking to a salesperson. That's okay. You know how to work with salespeople. You know that they're motivated by something slightly different and you can change your mindset around the relationship.
0: So important. So there, the F bond that we had to drop on the show. All right. I want you to talk about dumb thing number three and peak happiness. Yeah. And for those <laughs> you know, without the book in front of you, dumb three, thing number three is you make money more important than it is.
1: Um, you know, I know, isn't there like a little bit like happiness porn right now? Like in general, yeah. there's so many happiness books out. I hate that. I'm such a cynical pain in the ass that I... And we uh, love it. Your, your cynic, cynicism makes me happy. Go yeah. for it. Me, I just, I will say that like, look, life is hard and, you know, we're, we are, the human condition does not mean that you deserve to be happy, okay? Let's just be honest. There's like, crap happens all the time. However, the... Problem that money brings into your life is that it's just like your mom said. Money does not actually make you happier. Uh, although my mother likes to say, can make your discomfort quite a bit more comfortable. So it's that is true. So it can make pain better in terms of you could be a bit more comfortable in your pain, but it doesn't make pain go away. The thing that made me really focus on this is that when I was a financial planner when I was in practice, people would come into my office and. You know, they'd say, a couple would say, you know, we're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It's huge. And we feel like we don't live as well or we were happier when we were kind of making a third of this much money. Like, I, I make three hundred now, but when I was one hundred, it was I was living better and feeling happier. So this got me thinking that overall, we tend to make money so important. Uh, and part of that is you think that if you just get a little if 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 you like get more money, I'll be happier. and And it is true that, you know, once you have a if you can pay your bills, that's one step. But when you look at research, we find that, uh, if you have $75,000 globally as a household, that's kind of peak happiness. In the U.S., it's probably about $95,000. Um, but every dollar beyond that does not bring a dollar more happiness. You get to peak happiness, let's call it about hundred grand in a household in the United States. Um, And maybe a little bit less in the middle of the country where cost of living could be cheaper, a little bit more on the coast. But for everyone going nuts about your money, you know, you want to pay attention to it. You want to respect it. You just don't want it to control your decision making. And of course, the thing that's really hard about money is that there's so much uncertainty around your money and your life. And, And what we know from a lot of studies in science and, and medical studies that uncertainty creates a baseline of anxiety. So you're going to have to read through this chapter and understand that you can have this unhealthy attachment to money, which can lead to unhappiness and financial losses and get you stuck and make you, uh, encourage you perhaps to make a brash move that runs counter to your best interests. And then you got to back off and just say like, let me right size this and not go crazy
0: just acknowledge your acknowledge your issue with money and 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 move on and be happy on that's right, all right. So some uh, very unhappy people in the news, of course, all these uh, college parents. um, so um, but, but you have a I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about, though, is a comment I heard you discuss the other night the the, the financial choice between retirement and college, which for a lot of families is, you know, uh, a choice of the head ho- head of household parents are making, um, earning yeah. the money for their kids versus versus their retirement. What What are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think that that's just a terrible decision, and I know why they're making it. Uh, but full disclosure, I don't have children; I have two dogs. Uh, they're well educated. Just know that. <laughs> um, wise financial choice, say, I'd like to say, but <laughs> exactly. Well, what happens is that you know. Your kid's college usually comes before, you know, chronologically before retirement. So I would often be in a case where I would have a couple come in and they make good money and they would say to me, you know, oh, uh, Joey's going to college. We want to set some money aside. And I'd say, well, but, you know, your retirement, we really got to fund that. Yeah, but, you know, we'll we'll make it up later. You know, we're just going to we're instead of putting money into my 401k and maxing it out, I'll put half as much. I'll put 10 grand in. Let's put it in today's dollars. I'll put 10 grand in. I won't put 25 in, which is what you can do if you're over 50, 19. Uh, okay, well, you make that decision and maybe you save money for college. But when the kids are done with college, how do you know you're still going to have a job? Maybe you're not going to make it up. Maybe something bad happens. Uh, I think that what is happening and maybe this college admission scandal brings it to light is that people are getting fanatical and dopey about college and they are, they're not clear. It's so funny that like I wrote this before this whole scandal came out, but something that I really noticed was that a lot of my friends who had come and ask me about college. They say, "Well, you know, Joey got into uh, you Private University, which was like a third tier private university." I used to t- say the name of a college, by the way, that was a third tier university in my own head. And then an- someone I was pitching the book to went to that college, so I'll never do that again. <laughs> uh, so that was whoops. Exactly. Oops. But it's yes, going they, to the third they, tier they, college gets and, and, you in a whole lot of I'll, debt. I'll tell you. Yeah. And by the way, that person dropped out of the bidding pretty quickly. Anyway, um, so the problem is that we don't talk about college early enough and we overestimate the value of a high price school. So a couple things. Let me just give you a few facts. Yes, uh, a college degree is worth more in lifetime earnings versus a high school degree. No doubt. That is true. That's the overall Um, $900,000 for men, $630,000 for women, according to the government. Now, go beyond that one little bit now, right? Uh, A lot of that takes into account, yes, we know how much people make, but it doesn't take into account the debt they're carrying, the things they're not doing, the choices that are being delayed. But the other thing is that we find that a lot of people who are sending their kids to private schools – the kind of schools that don't offer very rich financial aid packages are borrowing a lot of money, and they think the kids are going to get a, quote, network, but they're not because a lot of the parents already have the network. So, you know, the absolute stupidity of this college admission scandal is that what we know is if you are a low-to-middle-income family and your kid goes to an elite school, that kid will leapfrog up into the top 20% of earners. But if the kid already starts as one of the top 20%, They don't go any further. Hmm. It's hysterical. So the dumbest thing, not only did you break the law, but you broke the law and your kid's not even going to get – is not going to get more out of it. They could have just used your network. And why did you do that? Because of maybe the bragging rights for your own country club. And by the way, you're probably kicked out of your country club now. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Insult to injury.
1: <laughs> exactly. On that happy
0: note, there we go back to ha- back to happiness. Um, Marty, I know you. I get to put you on the spot again. I know there was a, a portion of the book that made you question something.
2: Well, I, I found it really interesting. That's uh, number five, and uh, I can't remember the exact uh, you know, mistake, but it has to do rent versus own. Yeah. Uh really interesting. Yeah, oh, really I love this one because yeah, people are me.
1: so freaked out about real estate, right?
2: Uh, well, talk to me about that. Educate well, me.
1: Okay, so. I'm, pod, number I'm, five. I'm
2: calling into your podcast now, and I'm asking you this question. Like I'm really freaked out about this, Jill, Aunt Jill. Please help me.
1: Okay, <laughs> so. Um, you you buy a house when you should rent is dumb thing number 5 which is not to go. say that i don't think you should buy a house because you may a house may be perfect for you but i think the compulsion about buying real estate is really overstated mm. and you know frankly even this once in a generation housing crisis has not cured us of our love of real estate yeah. what i'm suggesting in this chapter is that you consider your personal situation carefully and you run your numbers. You really have to look at this because people say, oh, you know, it's going to cost me X dollars to buy a house. Here's the principal. Here's the interest. Here's the homeowner's insurance. Here's the property taxes. Well, already we know that the the property tax deduction has been skinnied up a bit after the Mm -hmm. new tax law went into effect. Mm -hmm. So your state and local tax deduction is limited to $10,000. We also know that houses are more than just those components. It's maintenance. It's upkeep. It may be that you're taking all of your liquid cash and putting it down into an illiquid asset at a time where liquidity should be really more important to you. Mm. So I I especially think that buying a house when you should rent is something that I have felt is – undersold for people retiring. A lot of people are like, I'm downsizing, which is baloney. They never downsize, right? They, they buy something else similar, a pound of money. What I would say is sometimes you should rent just to kind of see what happens yeah. next and chill out. You're not throwing money out the window by renting. You're buying yourself opportunity and flexibility. So it's okay. It's okay to buy. I'm not saying you shouldn't buy. I'm just saying you really need to be a little bit more thoughtful about this process
2: so kelly make sure that we do the big commercial on Joe. Podcasts, Jill podcasts websites all that kind of good stuff
1: oh yeah there, there
0: there's a before we get to the end let's just do it right now jill where is the best place for people to find you find your website find the book website they like want you know and they're not turning on cbs where can they find all this information
1: you can find everything I do at my website, JillOnMoney.com. JillOnMoney.com. And there you can read the stuff that I write. You can listen to the podcast. You can download the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. The podcast is also called Jill on Money. There's a link to the book. You can buy it. We have links to favorite booksellers. Go into your favorite store. Buy many copies for your friends, for your family, for your colleagues. No, I'm just kidding. No,
0: just not.
1: Remind, remind everyone you know how dumb they are i think it's you know, that, might make it, that might make them happy you know it's funny uh, yeah. i just will point out to you that uh, someone said to, so the cover it's covers like pops right whatever the dumb things smart people do with their money 13 ways to right your financial wrongs and there's a, a man hanging by a wire yeah. there yes so someone said why'd you pick a man i said because men are much stupider than women when it comes <laughs> to money i love that
2: uh I, i'll I try not to be offended by that but uh, I, it's
1: just, it's in my professional opinion. <laughs> okay. And we're I, not going to question you. Okay, I got
0: one, I Kelly, got take it from last, here. <laughs> one last question for you, Jill. I want yep. you to share your five steps to
1: investing success. So number one is you want to mind what I call the big three. And the big three is like, you don't get to start investing until you've paid down your outstanding consumer and student loan debt you've got an emergency reserve fund of 6 to 12 months of your living expenses, 12 to 24 months if you're retired, and 3 maxing out your retirement account. Whatever retirement account it is, and not just putting in the match, I mean maxing out. 19 grand if you are under 50, 25 grand if you're over 50, 5500 for an, a, a Roth or a regular IRA, uh 6500 if you're over 50. All right, those are your big three. Next, you create a plan. Why are you investing? Are you trying to reach retirement goals? Are you trying to fund college? You've got to figure out what is it you're trying to do, work backwards, and say, okay, with this plan, this is how much money I need to put to work. And then the next step is allocate your assets, meaning where is my money going to go? Is it going to go to cash? Is it going to go to stock? It's going to go to bonds. And you're going to allocate your assets and you're going to use the cheapest index or passive funds you can find. You're not going to go chase returns with some dingbat who says, oh, this we beat the market for five minutes. Over the long term, the whole key to investing is to keep your costs down, keep your tax liability down. That's the beauty of an index fund or an index exchange traded fund. Stick to the plan. And then you want to revisit the plan, meaning- not when the market moves, but when your life changes. So Kelly and I are getting married. We're merging our money. We want to go revisit our plan. Kelly and I are getting divorced. Not that it wouldn't work out, Kelly. I'm sure it would. But, uh, you know, we got to go revisit the plan. We have kids. We revisit the plan. So when things change in your life, that's when you revisit the plan for something really concrete. Otherwise, you know, every year or so you're going to go check, check out the plan. How would we do? Are we on course?
0: Here, don't revisit the plan when the market's doing something silly. Revisit the plan once your with your life. I think that's one of those points that, uh, you know, I sort of struck me. I was like, oh yeah, that's when you revisit the plan. Um, wow, thank you. This has been so much fun, so informative. Um. Everyone, get out and get Jill's book, um, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, 13 Ways to Right Your Financial Wrong. Her website is jillonmoney.com. Um, and, uh, you know, turn on CBS and see her there. We, ha- we haven't given you enough insights here. Um, thank you again, Jill, and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon.
1: Absolutely. Thank you both for having me. It's been that, a blast.
2: Thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Jay Kelly Hoey, for being our guest host on the Business Builders Show. You can learn more about Kelly at jkellyhoey.co. That's jkellyhoey, H-O-E-Y dot And of course, you can learn more about me, Marty Wolf, and the Business Builder Show at martywolfbusinesssolutions.com. That's martywolfbusinesssolutions.com. Remember, you can get all our shows and many other great shows at c sweetradiocom
0: Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builder Show with Marty
2: Wolf. As a loyal fan of this C-Suite radio show, we've got an unbelievable offer for you. Listeners to the Business Builder Show get 50% off a C-Suite Network membership. The C-Suite Network will help you become the most strategic person in the room. You'll have access to top-notch benefits and networking all helping you get the most out of your position. Take advantage of this limited-time offer today. Learn more about the C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR. Again, that's 50% off a C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com slash CSR.